Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. This week we're asking, is Russia waging a new war on Britain and the West? On Sunday, the 4th of March, Sergei Skripal and his daughter, Yulia, were found slumped on a bench in Salisbury in England. Skripal is Russian and he was an MI6 double agent and part of a prisoner exchange with Britain and America in 2010. Having been pardoned in Moscow, he seemed destined for a quiet retirement. But the attempted attack on his life, and he's still seriously ill, involved a chemical that, according to the Prime Minister, Theresa May, is part of a group of nerve agents developed by Russia. She's pointed the finger squarely at the Kremlin, and this diplomatic clash could spiral into a wider international standoff. The Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, told the House of Commons there were echoes of the death of Alexander Litvinenko, another former Russian spy whose murder on British soil has been blamed on the Kremlin. It is clear that Russia, I'm afraid, is now in many respects a malign and disruptive force. And when Mr Johnson was asked if Russian cyber attacks should also be classified as acts of war, the Foreign Secretary was unequivocal. So I increasingly think that we have to categorise them as acts of war. Prime Minister May announced Britain will expel 23 Russian diplomats and suspend all high-level contact with Moscow. Moscow in turn denies responsibility. Its foreign ministry called the allegations insane and not backed up by evidence. But the White House says it stands in solidarity with Britain, its closest ally, and President Trump's spokeswoman accused Russia of undermining the security of countries worldwide. So as Britain accuses the Kremlin of ripping up the international rulebook, where will it all lead? In the studio, I'm joined by Arkady Ostrovsky, The Economist's Russia editor, and by Sir Francis Richards, a former British diplomat and former head of GCHQ, the British version of the National Security Agency. Sir Francis, welcome to The Economist Asks. Good to be here. There is a lot of talk about what has happened and the response to it as paving the way to a new kind of standoff, possibly even something that we could call a new war. Is that right? I think that the term war is misleading. I think it's almost an obsolete word in that war tends to imply you have peace and then someone presents a bit of paper and then you're the other side of a line. We're over that line all of the time. We're not into all-out war, but we are in a perpetual conflict, the rules of which are not at all clear. War on the whole has been conducted according to at least some rules most of the time. This one really doesn't have any. At least it has rules that bind us 
but none that bind the aggressors. And in some ways, you'd be perhaps a person you'd expect to be least surprised. You've had a senior job in the British Embassy in Moscow. You've studied the Cold War for a very long time in other diplomatic roles. And you've headed the Electronic Intelligence Gathering Agency. Is what is happening now different to all of that or a continuity? Um, The Cold War was propelled by entirely different motivations. I mean, the Russians um, essentially were protecting a status quo in Europe. Um, they didn't want any instability, any, in, either on their patch. They didn't actually want instability in Western Europe either particularly. You know, they wanted quite strong communist parties. Um, but they wanted everything to remain exactly as it was. They had annexed half of Europe at the end of the Second World War. They didn't want anybody interfering with that. And they were also extremely secure at home. They didn't conduct elections. They had total control of the media. The amount of external information that was seeping into the Russian public was virtually non-existent. And what's changed? Everything. Um, Russia is slightly democratic in the sense that they have elections um, every now and then um, about which the president, or in spite of his significant um, scope for manipulating them, does get worried. Um, he has to mind about Russian public opinion. He has to mind too about the day when he will have to hand over to someone else and make sure that he can do that under his control. And where does the Scripple case then fit into this? As there's one narrative, just to hear your, both of your views in a nutshell, one narrative says this is a pour encourager les autres, this is to put off anyone who's involved with the KGB or any state security service in Russia from even thinking of going over to the other side. He was a double agent. And the other one says this is in some way about beefing up Putin's domestic image. They seem to be two different tracks of thought. I'm not sure that they're entirely separate. Um, I mean, after all, Skripal has been in the West for quite a long time. Um, One has to ask, why now? Um, Has some decision been taken? There may have been a strategic decision to go rather harder after defectors. I don't know. But the fact that it has taken place just before a Russian presidential election has to be significant in one way or another, even if only negatively. If you're going to go after a former double agent retired and living in Britain, why do it in this extraordinarily elaborate and dangerous way? If you just want to kill a double agent um, as part of a purge that you have decided for reasons of your own to carry out, if you'd, and if you're doing it just before a Russian presidential election, you do not choose um, to do it with a chemical weapon which immediately ties the action to the Russian government and raises its profile, I mean, 100%, several hundred percent. You do not do that unless you're trying to make a very strong and public point. And what is the point? The point is that you do not mess with Russia and you especially do not mess with Putin's Russia. You're assuming that there is the proof, as the Prime Minister claims, that this is guided by Russia. How far up the hierarchy in Russia do you think this this goes? Or do you think you could be secure in saying that it goes? It's very difficult to know because the line between the state and the near state in Russia is virtually non-existent. Well, that that could be a get-out of responsibility for Vladimir Putin. Well, it could, but equally, um, anybody anybody who was carrying this out who was part of the non-state, like the little green men in Crimea, 
has to David, be close enough the, the to government. The men in uniform who yes, were clearly yeah, sent by yes, Moscow. Yes, yes. Um, has to be close enough to government to get released to them a very sophisticated nerve agent, which you can't buy on the streets as you would buy drugs in a Russian city. You know, this is something that is under very, very tight government control. So, I mean, it is inconceivable that even a non-state actor in Russia carrying this out would do so, would be able to do so, or would dare to do so if he thought that the reaction from the Kremlin was going to be negative. Arkady, does that accord with your view of where responsibility lies in all due probability? Yes. I'm not sure this actually affects the response uh, very much, but I think Sir Francis's analysis is absolutely right. I think Russia operates not as a centralized communist type, you know, Soviet type state. It's more of a network. You could say it's more of a terrorist network or it's more of a mafia. I mean, it doesn't, this is not a judgmental call. It, it's the structure of the operation is much more a network where there are blurred lines between um, the state and those who act in its name. Uh, in that sense, the sense of a threat is is different from the Soviet times, uh, where there was a structure of the KGB, there was, you know, you had counterparts. I agree with Francis that it's not a conventional war, but then neither is the war with ISIS. Uh, you know, we're, we're faced with a very different type of of offense. Where I do disagree with Sir Francis is, is on the question of uh, whether this is that fundamentally different from Cold War in one respect. And that is, I think, that our analysis of Cold War has been over-affected, over-colored by the idea of ideology. And as George Cannon wrote back in 1946 uh, in his long telegram, ideology is not all that important to this system, that ultimately the conflict is still about the survival of the system, which feels inferior, about the survival of the leaders. You know, it's a system of, of sort of socialist states, uh, if you like. It's very different from the Western system. They are threatened by the Western system. And the two systems, you know, one which is an open system where, you know, based on the rule of law and access to resources, equal access, access to resources and competition uh, on the Western side and the system on the Russian side, which is about rents, elites, you know, limited access to resources, etc. So those two conflicts inevitably come into conflict. They particularly come into conflict when the resources of the Russian state are becoming more scarce. I do think that we are dealing with a very different kind of people to the people we were dealing with in the Cold War. What would tell you that? And if, if there is a story from your own I experience, we were both in uh, Moscow in the early 1990s, but you'd been in and out before. I mean, what would the sort of character of the dealings be that's different, if you could put your finger on it? Well, we were dealing then with a very, very conservative, relatively secure elite, self-perpetuating, as a perpetual motion machine, really. We couldn't actually see the end of it at the time. And when people wrote books saying, will the Soviet Union last till 1984, we all thought that that was pretty fanciful back in the 1970s. It did look pretty much eternal. I think that has been totally changed by the collapse of the Soviet Union, which and was a collective nervous breakdown for the entire uh, population of Russia. I mean, they had slaved for something that they'd been taught to regard as the ultimate form of um, government. They had earned very little during their working lives with a promise that they would be looked after in their old age, that the system would work for them. And they'd put in the investment and they 
were suddenly told, no, you're not going to get anything back. The rules have all changed. And, I mean, that it, it, it was an earthquake for all of them. I suppose the continuity is in Vladimir Putin himself as a former KGB man. How significant do you find that? And does, do you think this links directly to the kind of action that we're seeing now? Uh, the Skripal case being obviously Litvinenko, uh, uh, another victim in London before him. How much is that simply down to the old deep state continuities that Vladimir Putin represents, Sarkadi? Well, there is a continuity of institution. I mean, the KGB is an institution that had been a you know, staple, one of the pillars of, of the Soviet system. It's a corporation, it's a corporate structure. In the Soviet times, the KGB, of course, was subjected to the control of the Communist Party, a very severe control, because the nomenclature and the top echelons of the Soviet power uh, were very aware and scared of what happened under Stalin. Uh, so they've subjected the KGB to their control. Now, the KGB, you know, the security services, do not have any oversight uh, from either any party, parliament, or the government. You know, the person who's at the top of the Kremlin is, is sort of their man. But there is another fundamental difference in the kind of people we're dealing with. And that is the Soviet Union was ruled by people who were the winners in the Second World War. They went through the war. They knew what war meant. And they felt the victors. They didn't want to be the same as the West. Uh, they didn't desire the Western lifestyles, etc. We're now dealing with people who are both insecure for Putin's generation, you know, who, uh, you know, people who feel they've lost in the Cold War, at the same time very much desired a Western lifestyle and been given a cold shoulder. And the whole thing is based on this um, ressentiment, you know, Know, and this sort of jealousy and resentment of the West. And we thought you would accept us as, as equals and you haven't. And this is, I think, what actually is the psychological driver of his actions. I don't think that Russia is democratic in any way. It was also very interesting that Sir Francis mentioned the view in the West and indeed inside the Soviet Union at the time that this was an unshakable system and you know, would go on forever and the idea that it would end in 1984 was, was fanciful. There is a very good book by a, a social anthropologist, American Soviet-born anthropologist, uh, Alexei Yurchak, which is called Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More. And there is a paradox that while nobody expected it to fall and collapse in the way it did, when it did, nobody was surprised. And there was actually inherent contradictions within the system. There was life outside this dichotomy of the officialdom and the dissidents because there was a whole country that was actually living sort of almost separate from the ideology and the, uh, the narrative of the Communist Party. And I think this is sort of a thing which is actually happening now. Putin looks unshakable and this will go on forever, whereas in fact the change is already underway. Let's look at the response or what the response should be uh, to the, the Skripal case and the, the broader sense that this has now you know, reached a, a, a boiling point. We've seen uh, some support for Theresa May. The White House finally got its boots on and said that, yes, it probably was the, the Russians. Slightly more lukewarm from France and a bit of reserve from Germany. Is this a sort of nervousness about engaging in a war of words with Russia among our allies, Francis? I think there's always a, a greater nervousness um, in continental Europe about um, picking fights with the Russians. Um, we have always been uh, perhaps the, the most hawkish. And there's always um, traditionally been nervousness from France, which has always liked to be the, the link in Europe with any Russian regime. The Germans, too, have... Um, Really? It did lead on to sanctions. The agenda. Angela Merkel put herself out to bat for sanctions, didn't she? I yes, guess. yes, Who's absolutely. But she would expect us to be measured. 
and a purely British response is totally inadequate. To the do, do you approve of the British response? Just I do approve of the British response. I approve both of its toughness and of the fact that um, it is measured and for the time being restrained and it leaves room to move forward in parallel with allies. Uh, the Russian diplomats who are being expelled, can we be sure that they're all intelligence agents or how much of it is symbolic? I think it's very improbable that they're not. Um, you know, I'm not privy to the intelligence that has identified them, but they will all have been the subject of surveillance in this country and of warranted surveillance. Is there a failure on the British side, the British intelligence side, to uh, protect Skripal, who, after all, was a double agent? He, he uh, was swapped in a multi-sided, very high-profile spy swap. He was an attempted poisoning in a Salisbury shopping centre. Does that look like an, well, with, a, a failure of the service? With the, hindsight, obviously, I'm sure that... The British agencies will wish they'd done more to um, to protect Skripal, but there was no real reason to believe that he was under threat. The principles in spy swaps in the past had not been pursued, and Skripal was not himself vocally active against Russian interests. I mean, he wasn't. He wasn't Yorgi Markov, the Bulgarian yes. uh, man who was murdered. Yes. Who was an inconvenience and a, a, and, 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 and a current it's inconvenience. 80, it? yes. but, yeah, it's, but I mean, if, if one can't see that a, a swap double agent might in some way be part of a, a full spectrum you know, engagement, that does to me look like a lapse. Well, there's quite a lot of people in the West now who potentially might be the victims of uh, Russian vengeance attacks. If this new doctrine does say that everybody who has betrayed Russia and, you know, Putin's public pronouncements on this are pretty clear. We should perhaps have listened a little more when they passed a law actually legalizing the pursuit of traitors. But these were people they had not themselves condemned to death. They could have killed Skripal um, years ago. And they had technically at least abolished the death penalty, but it would have, I think, not been difficult for them to make sure that he died of some mysterious disease. Much easier to do that than on a peaceful afternoon in Salisbury. That suggests the decision was taken relatively recently. Yes, yes. Do you agree with that, Arcudi? Yeah, I think that, you know, we will never know actually what uh, happened. The problem is that Russian state operates in a very opaque sort of diffusive way. We'll never have a completely conclusive evidence that this was uh, the Russian state. And in a way, the blurring of the lines between the private and the state is sort of goes to that end. I think where Britain's structural vulnerability comes into this is it's a country which is at the same time very hawkish towards Russia, which, which might be right, uh, and which is probably right, and it's hawkish in its rhetoric. But at the same time, let's not forget that London is the place which has attracted more Russian money. Uh, this is the place where the, the really the Russian oligarchs, the cronies of Putin, the officials laundered their money. The city remained open to them. The legal services here, the lawyers, the estate agents, the PR agencies, everybody's open and embracing this Russian money. And the Russians see it, you know, from where Vladimir Putin sits, this is a hypocrisy. And this is actually what makes Britain vulnerable. Francis. Yes, I'd, I'd agree with that. Our problem is that um, we do have to operate within the law. We have a Magnitsky law under discussion, and we'll, 
wait and see what the government does about um, various amendments to that in the course of the next few weeks. Which would allow the authorities to go after money for which there was no clear legal source. But isn't the sense of Arcadi's question a slightly different one? And it's the, the links of British businesses, the inextricable links of British businesses to Russia, BP, without a 20% stake in, in Rosneft. It goes right across society now, or business society. You yourself had an advisory role at one point. I don't know if you still have it. For Mikhail no. Friedman, who is a major Russian business figure with banking and other interests. So the point is that we look like a bit that Britain is for sale. I think that um, unless we were to take a decision not to do any business with Russia, which would be extremely difficult. You have to remember that uh, Russia, um, right through the Cold War and ever since, has been a major energy supplier to Europe. The Russians, even at the worst moments of the Cold War, never interrupted that. A business relationship, which must, as far as people like the Germans are concerned, include the continuing supply of oil and gas, um, will continue. And I think so you defend the BP deal. You know, the, I mean, there are some people saying that is a symbol, perhaps the biggest symbol, that we got in too deep and that the relations came about protecting British-Russian business alliances. Well, the present nature of BP's engagement in Russia, it's a modus vivendi achieved after some pretty sharp battles when BP did get in too deep and got into pretty bad trouble as a result. This is the result of the truce that followed. I, I, BP's a major international player, and if you are a major international player, it would be quite difficult not to have an interest in um, a supplier as important as Russia. I can quite see that. In too deep? Yes. I think, uh, you know, yes, BP is an international player, so is Ox, ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil last year was fined uh, for dealing, uh, having been you know, a substantial business dealing with Igor Sechin, the chairman of Rosneft and the man who is on the US sanctions list. I think we are approaching it in the wrong way. I think we do need a new policy where, of course, you know, the property rights and the rule of law is sacrosanct. And that shouldn't be where we're sort of targeting people who are a threat to national security. I think a different approach needs to be taken, and that is approach of, of a political decision that targets particular people who are identified by intelligence services, the Foreign Office, uh, the Treasury, who perpetuate, uh, enable, empower uh, Putin's regime and this sort of attacks. You know, Friedman is very different from that. I mean, Friedman is a private businessman, ultimately, who's actually now in, in England exactly because his property rights are not protected in Russia fully. But identifying people as the US has done, which is no less rule-based society, in identifying people who are a threat, putting on the sanctions list, which is a political act, mm. and going after those. And any British business that then deals with the people who are identified as a threat to national security of this country should not be allowed to operate or do any business dealing with them, which is exactly what's happening with especially designated nationalists in America, which is much broader and much more strictly applied. What do you imagine your old colleagues at GCHQ will be up to at the, at the moment? I mean, how much do you think that the approach overall of the intelligence agencies is changing or their focus is sharpening as a result of what's happened? Francis? Well, the intelligence agencies do what they're told. They respond to demand. And um, after the end of the Cold War, we actually went on putting much too much effort into Russia, um, simply because there wasn't yet 
a demand for anything else. There was a huge analyst community out there demanding to be fed. And the consequence was that um, we weren't as ready as we should have been for international terrorism when it became our primary concern. But this rather looks as if the, the, the screw has turned again. Absolutely. And we're on, yeah. We would have been very foolish to let go of Russia, and we should have been, and I'm sure have been, ramping up our capability in relation to Russia in recent years. We expect to see extra resources put into Russia now, certainly. What about retaliation from Russia, Arkady, as we come to a close? What do you expect to happen? This is happening in the run-up to presidential elections on Sunday. Is that going to change the mood one way or the other? There is a question of why this happened just before the elections and what is it supposed to achieve? And in my mind, you know, if you put it in the context of, of Putin's uh, State of the Nation address in which he threatened the US with nuclear arms, uh, the response from the foreign ministry spokesman who said, don't threaten us with ultimatums and sanctions because we've got nuclear missiles. Basically, this whole incident, given in the context, sets the narrative for Putin's next six years in power. And that narrative is war. If you have a narrative of war, then any dissent from the Kremlin, any switching sides will be punished. And this is a warning to the Russian elites, including to the security services, who also feel very uncomfortable with this whole situation and would rather not be part of this confrontation because they know that Britain can retaliate. So it's a warning to the Russian elite on the one hand. In terms of the response to, to British measures, of course, there will be the tit-a-tat, you know, the Russians will expel British diplomats, they will do all that. But, but um, if the past is any guide, the past few years is any guide, what the Russians will concentrate on is sort of asymmetric measures. So they will continue to sow discord and chaos within the British political system. They will be trying to split the allies. They will be attacking uh, Theresa May where she is weakest uh, on be it on Brexit, on be it domestic politics. I think it will it'll be that sort of asymmetric response. Uh, see what we can do to you. Last word, Sir Francis. What do you think we have on our side in what looks like, if not a new Cold War, then certainly a new and dangerous chill? What we have on our side is, in the end, the truth. It's the fact that we have a free press and it's almost impossible to stop the truth leaking into Russia in the digital age. Sir Francis Richards and uh, Arkady Ostrovsky, thank you both very much. And tell us what you think. Are we on the brink of a new war? We're on email at radioeconomist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Do get in touch. The Kremlin's free to call too. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.